You are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Welcome to the Joseph Campbell Foundation Podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. I'm your host, Bradley Olson. On this podcast, we share archived audio lectures given by Joseph Campbell over the course of his teaching and lecturing career. Today, we're privileged to audit another of Professor Campbell's Sarah Lawrence classroom lectures. This one is from 1966 and covers Sir James George Fraser's life's work, The Golden Bough, a study in magic and religion. As you know, Campbell taught at Sarah Lawrence College for 38 years, and one of the most common requests the Joseph Campbell Foundation receives is for Joseph Campbell's Sarah Lawrence reading list. The books he suggested reading for his mythology courses at Sarah Lawrence College. The book listed at number two on Campbell's reading list is, in fact, Fraser's The Golden Bough. And it's this work upon which Campbell crafts the lecture you will enjoy today. Campbell was by no means the only person who valued Fraser's work. Fraser's books were wildly popular by the turn of the 20th century and remain so throughout. Even Sigmund Freud relied on Fraser as he wrote Totem and Taboo. Professor Campbell clearly loved this book, and in his classroom introduction to it, he calls it, quote, a great, great book. And it was a book he leaned upon while writing The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Sir James George Fraser was one of those 19th century gentleman scholars, as Campbell called him. He was knighted in 1914, and Fraser was a dilettante in the true sense of the word, devoid of all the negative connotations that now enshroud it. Originally, to be a dilettante meant that one was allured, delighted, charmed, and pleased by literature and the arts. It meant that one was a devoted amateur practitioner and lover of the arts. This certainly seems to be an accurate assessment of Fraser as far as his relationship to mythology and anthropology is concerned. In 1962, Stanley Hyman wrote an interesting book called The Tangled Bank, Darwin, Marx, Fraser, and Freud as Imaginative Writers. And he describes Fraser this way, For more than 50 years, 12 or 15 hours a day, seven days a week, Fraser read with steel pen in hand, copying out passages of anthropological interest into notebooks or worked at compiling the notebooks into books. Only a relatively small amount of lecturing, walking, and travel interrupted this lifetime of industry in which Fraser literally read and wrote himself blind. Now, I think it's important to mention the disregard, if not outright contempt, contemporary scholars have of Fraser's work. That negative critical opinion kept me from reading Fraser's work for a very long time. When I did finally begin to read him, I found much in his unabridged work that was stultifyingly pedantic and stupefyingly boring. For that reason... Campbell was wise to choose the one-volume unabridged edition of The Golden Bough. In this unabridged edition, 
There are kingfisher-like flashes of brilliant realizations and beautiful prose that flow from Fraser's mind and pen. And enough of them to keep me engaged with the ideas that were compelling enough for one man, at least, to devote his life to. In spite of the criticism it's received, The Golden Bough is a work that has inspired and continues to inspire readers, largely for the reason that its critics continually complain about. It is a grand, almost Baroque, singular work of speculative imagination. That alone is worthy of admiration. However, there are those in the Academy that insist on dismissing it. Edmund Leach, a provost of King's College, Oxford, president of the Royal Anthropological Institute in the 1970s, and knighted by the Queen in 1975, was particularly aggressive in his attacks on Fraser, saying, quote, There was very little basis for Fraser's great reputation. He was not an accurate scholar or an original thinker. Leach went on to remark that, quote, The analogies from other parts of the world have no bearing on the matter. Politicians can argue in this fashion, but not professional scholars. Unquote. Now, never mind that the analogies Leach spoke of were in fact reasonably accurate accounts presented in a comparative manner that could easily be understood as data. Leach's tell, as we say in the game of poker, is that word professional. That word implies disciplinary boundaries and lanes and brackets proper anthropological study and analysis apart from vulgar lay interests. For Leach, apparently, anthropology is a science that must be left to the professionals who employ scientific reasoning and cool objectivity. In a 2016 article in the HAU Journal of Ethnographic Studies, a prominent peer-reviewed journal, I might add, Victor Kumar of Johns Hopkins University writes, To Leach, anthropology should be more than idle or even informed speculation. The discipline should instead be founded on scientific reasoning and objective methods. Leach must have felt compelled to confront the Golden Bough not because it was significantly worse than other anthropological forebears, but because of its extraordinary popularity. The public love for Fraser's text was a not-so-private embarrassment for the professional social scientist who couldn't but read Fraser, not for the anthropology he does, but for the one they wished he had done. I think a problem with Leach's criticism is that the act of creating scientific theories and objective descriptions of myth and ritual is often a way of deeply misinterpreting and misunderstanding them. A comparative study such as Fraser's Golden Bough, not to mention Joseph Campbell's own body of work, is comparable to a database, and as such, it becomes a legitimate tool of research. Perhaps in championing Fraser's work, and I must add that he was not uncritical of it, Campbell was perhaps arguing for the validity of his own methods. God knows the criticism leveled against these two men are distressingly similar. Furthermore, Kumar goes on to favorably compare Fraser's comparative methodology to that of the famous French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss 
who also posited that science and myth are variations of one another. Levi-Strauss is not interested in the quote-unquote correct explanation for a phenomenon as much as he's interested in the intellectual operations and intricacies of the human minds that created them. This process of creation he called intellectual bricolage. Bricolage means the process of taking whatever materials are at hand to achieve one's ends. And in Levi-Strauss's project of bricolage, he certainly made use of comparative data. Oddly, it seems to me, given the critics' concern for professionalism and scholarly methodology, so much of the criticism of Fraser's work stemmed from his treatment of Christianity as a myth, an act of some considerable courage, I think, in the late 19th century. We simply can't, the criticism seems to go, place the Lamb of God in a long line of pagan religious relics. As a result of this uproar, Fraser moved his account of the crucifixion to an appendix and entirely removed his analysis of Christianity from the abridged single-volume edition, which, coincidentally, is the volume Professor Campbell assigned to his students. And Campbell's decision was made, no doubt, solely by the simple fact that one volume is easier to read than twelve. Well, as is the case with nearly every subject Professor Campbell touches upon, there is so much to say. But I'll stop now so you can enjoy Joseph Campbell's 1966 lecture on Sir James George Fraser and the Golden Bough. And immediately following his talk, I'll be back with some final remarks and explore some of the important and interesting ideas from the lecture. And now, here's Joseph Campbell. Now, Fraser's Golden Bough. This is uh, one of the great, great books of the 19th century anthropology. Fraser was born in 1854, and he died in 1941. And uh, the first volumes of this work began coming out around 1890. It was in 1921 that the one-volume edition was uh, published, I believe. It's definitely a 19th century work. It represents the kind of tremendous scholarship that one finds in a great many of these marvelous 19th century men. A lot of detail work has been done since in any of these fields of anthropology, but there have been very, very few men who've had general insights and grandiose culture uh, realizations concerning history and so forth of the whole world of man to match those of the 19th century scholars. All I can say is, and it sounds a little silly, but we don't have scholars like that anymore. They're mostly involved in administration and in uh, wrangling among themselves and setting up a little uh, area of their own and then um, pushing. But this man was what we call a gentleman scholar. He was, did not have to depend on a rise in salary for his uh, income. And he was a man who was an enthusiast and wasn't going at this uh, for kudos or grants in aid, but um, because it was a matter of deep concern to him. Also, he was a graceful writer, which is something very few anthropologists. In fact, 
This is wonderful. Sang Shi Ping. To be able to ride lucidly is now considered a fault by the anthropologist. Um, and I'm not kidding. This has appeared in review. The, uh, the challenge that Fraser met here. Now you must realize that in Fraser's day, hardly anyone had thought of associating classical studies with anthropology. These were two departments, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon world. In Germany, it was somewhat different. But in the Anglo-Saxon world, these were two separate departments. And he was one of the very first to realize that the classical world could be interpreted in relation to the discoveries that were coming in in anthropology. One of the great anthropologists, Tyler, had written in 1872, had published in 1872, his Primitive Cultures, great work in two volumes, which is one of the classics of anthropology. And so this was in the air, it was very much in the air in Germany, but uh, coming into the air in uh, England at the time. Now, what was the challenge here? It's hard these days to realize the simplicity of the earlier view of the classical world was that the Greek was a kind of sunny dispositioned person, and the classical mythology was always held in direct contrast to the biblical mythology. These two having been the ground base of our having first the ground base of our own culture, the Greek sunny and uh, delighted with the world, and the Hebrew, lugubrious and deep uh, and uh, full of dark religious thought. Well, now we know <laughs> that the deep, dark side is in Greece as well, and that there's a sunny side to the, to the Hebrew tradition. They come in two with two entirely different <laughs> dispositions in relation to these two moves. The great shock um, that opened up Fraser's work with the realization that this strange ritual at the Lake of Nemi was altogether contrary to everything anyone would have thought proper to the classical tradition. Here was this lake, Nemi, in a grove, a sacred grove, and a particular tree in that grove, an oak tree, guarded by a priest. And this priest had won his position by killing the man before him. And he would lose it by being killed by his follower. So he's continually on the watch. Fraser presents this image, I think, rather well of this man watching critically for the one who is going to knock him out all the time watching. Now, of course, we recognize the scene. It's exactly the place where the little girl who was playing with the golden ball lost the ball down into the pool. The great tree, the forest, the pool, it's a sacred place. And uh, just as the frog came up out of the pool, so there is a divinity here too. This divinity, the male divinity, is Virbius, who is the consort of Artemis. Now, Artemis is usually thought of as the virgin goddess, but that is a late specialization of, of Artemis. All of these great goddesses were the complete goddess in all her aspects. But when you have a whole little community of goddesses, a kind of um, women's club of goddesses, and uh, you can't say, well, you're all the great goddesses. So you sort of assign committee tasks. You are 
to represent the virgin goddess, you have to represent the, uh, the erotic goddess, you have to represent the goddess matron and so forth. And uh, so these special roles, what might be called a specialization of the goddess, uh, belong to a later period. Originally, she was the great goddess, and so Artemis is at naming. Then we know that the consort of the great goddess is that lord of the abyss down there under the water, the frog king. In this particular tradition, the horse has become a very important uh, sacrificial figure. The horse comes in with the Aryans and uh, represents the, the kingly sacrifice, in contrast to the bull, who represents the sacrifice of the great cattle herding people, and in contrast to the pig, who represents the sacrifice of the earlier peasant people. Now, the way Fraser went about uh, finding his clues is extremely instructive. I think the first pages of the work are, uh, are a good sort of guide to how to begin a difficult task in research. He went through all the classical texts looking for references and then began to put things together. However, there was no direct evidence for the sense of this cult in Rome or in classical culture. And to compensate for this uh, paucity of evidence, he starts moving out. A little like the story of the girl who went to pull a little thread off her boyfriend's uh, sleeve and unraveled his underwear. The whole, the whole thing kept coming and coming and coming. Uh, actually, he started out with a very um, slight job just to check up on a, a little right. And he ends up with this great 12 final work. <laughs> now, before I go into that work, I want to say a word or two about Fraser's own position. He takes the psychological view with respect to the origins of mythology. This is the view of parallel independent development. Because, and he says so, because the human psyche is essentially a constant, essentially, let's say not in its superficial aspects, but a group, a constant. So its productions are constant and its responses to similar stimuli will be consistent. According to that view, you could erase all the myths of the world, just wipe them out, and the whole thing would be back again in a couple of generations, just coming forth from the psyche. Now, this is a position that Freud will take, a position that Jung will take. Uh, what Freud will do will be to drop a new dimension, <laughs> Jung as well, into Fraser's uh, picture. Fraser is Freud's anthropologist. Freud's basis is anthropology on Fraser. Fraser's anthropology is a rational, associational psychology. Freud's is a irrational associational psychology. That's say the, uh, the imagery that uh, represents the associations in the Freudian system stems largely from the unconscious, whereas uh, phrases are on the uh, associations are on the conscious level. So there are many, many analogies that we're going to uh, <coughs> mind when we turn to Fraser's Freud. The next point is that um, in Fraser's day. Darwinism had just broken through. Uh, Darwin's Origin of Species, 1859. And uh, Spencer's philosophy of developing this from the 
biological evolution, there came a uh, sort of fashion for um, an evolutionary theory about society, the evolution of society being uh, ine inevitable. The idea was, so to say, that society had, well, like an organism, an inevitable course that it would take. And when you proceeded from London away, you went from the highest point up to date. And the further away you got, of course, the, the lower the forms of evolution, just as when you proceed from human beings to apes, to monkeys, to uh, other types of mammal, then down to lizards, and then finally down to celenerates and so forth, you're going down a scale, and this can all be classified as it is over in the biological lab, in terms of an evolution. Well, it was an attempt to classify societies that way. This will seem a little bit like my own classification of societies, which is uh, based on the archaeologists of today, which is, however, not evolutionary in quite the same way, as I'll try to explain when I finish talking about Fraser. This has been held against Fraser, this evolutionary view. And it was particularly held against him uh, from about 1921 or two onward with the development of the functionalist point of view in anthropology to this point, that it is, um, it is uh, improper to compare elements drawn from different societies. So the whole approach of Fraser was rejected. All well, the most of his conclusions were accepted and came out under other people's names. The uh, functionalist point of view is that each society is, as it were, an organism, and uh, what goes on in one organism cannot be compared to another. So the beating of your heart could not be compared with the beating of your heart. Or quite different, quite different organisms. Fraser's method is, is comparative, frankly. Now, let me just um, validate that uh, in terms of contemporary knowledge. As I pointed out, all of the high cases do indeed stem from one root. That which was planted, so to say, in the Near East in the 8th millennium BC with the discovery or, or development of the arts of agriculture and animal husbandry. Now, the difference between Fraser's approach and this, which I'm representing here, is I'm not saying that this is an inevitable thing that would inevitably have proceeded from the development of societies. It might never have come from the development of societies. In fact, it didn't for an awful long time. And by what accident or uh, fate this did develop, um, no one uh, can say. But it, it did develop. And from that, it is a fact that the high cultures were uh, developed. One eastward, another westward, another northward, another southward. And so they are related. And they do share values and share forms which have stemmed from the same place. These forms did not grow up separately. So the phrases separate, independent development, I would, personally, I would discard. And I would say that the similarities that he notes are the consequence of this diffusion. But the similarities are there. And they cannot be argued away. Well, now from that, I'll go on to deal with Fraser. First thing he realized was that there was a kind of philosophy involved in all this, and it is the philosophy of sympathetic magic. So the first phase of Fraser's discussion has to do 
with the nature of sympathetic magic. Sympathetic magic is based on the association of ideas. And its fundamental error is that because things are associated in one's mind, one concludes that they are associated in fact. That's the whole basis of magic as we describe. Because two ideas or facts are associated in your mind, you imagine them to be associated in fact. Now there are two ways for things to be associated in the mind, as Fraser described. One, they resemble each other. Two, they have been in contact with each other. Because magic based on resemblance, imitative or homeopathic magic, he terms magic based on things having been in touch with each other, contagious magic. But they're both sympathetic and based on association of ideas. So we have association here of ideas, <coughs> and then the notion that there is an association in fact, and then these two modes of association, imitation and contagion. Now all this focus with dolls that resemble somebody, uh, also you put the person's name in the doll. There's an association of the word and the name with the person. And then if you can get some hair or fingernail pairings in the person and associated with up still more of the person's presence. I had a very strange experience myself many years ago when a friend of mine had just lost his job and it was in the middle of the depression and he had a lot of uh, very sympathetic friends. And so one evening when he was complaining of this, we said we would kill his boss by magic. So we had some old candles there and he got a lot of wax and made the wax figure. And he had actually brought uh, some fingernail pairings or a man's pencil or some detail which we incorporated in this thing. And then we went through a little ritual and of course nothing happened. We left the uh, little image on the uh, mantelpiece. Well, some weeks later, uh, my friend's <coughs> wife was cleaning up the house and sweeping everything into the fireplace, and uh, she just tossed this thing in. And the next day, the man was dead. This gave us all rather a <laughs> uh, the, the fact is that whether by chance or by a more uh, remote control, <laughs> things do happen often enough if you practice rites of this kind give you a sense of, if you do it right, it will work. These things have been validated <laughs> through the ages, and many more complicated things than just burning up little figures like that. First then, we have these two orders of magic, imitation and contagion. The next point <laughs> comes with uh, the right and the theory, what Fraser calls the theoretical, theoretical magic and practical magic. The theoretics he calls myth. And the practice is the cult. Now the relationship of myth to cult 
is exactly the same as the relationship of mathematics to technology or what the engineer studies in the engineering school and what he does when he goes out of the engineering school and builds a bridge. So this is the act which incorporates the myth. Now this is why this um, strange theory about the origins of myth, um, what's called the ritual origin of mythology, does not make sense. The ritual origin of mythology um, is based on the notion that a right comes first and then the myth grows out of the right. Well, there are actually myths that grow out of rights, particularly when the right has come down from the past and everybody's forgotten what the original sense was and makes up a story about it. That was a secondary myth. But the myth is implicit in the right, just as a theory is implicit in a technology. And to say that the theoretics of technology have been derived from actual technology uh, is about the same as saying that myths derive from help. They are, they are related. There may be an intuitive mythology, which has not been formulated very uh, consistently or explicitly, but there is a myth implicit in the act of theory. Now we come to the crucial point. There is a distinct, another distinction made by Fraser between private and public magic. Now, on early culture levels, the public was served by magicians who brought the rain, brought the animals, and so forth and so on. But there are also private services. The private uh, witch or sorcerer, and the usual request to a private sorcerer when you go to have a sorcerer work for you is that love magic and death magic. One goes to make people fall in love with one, or one goes to kill someone off, usually if they're related somehow. The, this is what is generally called blank magic, doing things of a very selfish sort to compel people to your will. Whereas public magic is generally regarded as quite magic, and in agricultural societies, and those are the societies that Fraser is dealing with, all of which, as we say, originate about 8,000 BC. In public magic, on that level, the magician's main concern is to fertilize the earth, to bring the rain, and to foster the uh, fertility of the plant. An earlier type, which Fraser does not consider, is that of bringing the animals among the hunting people. That's the magician's problem. So now we come to Fraser's uh, important notion about the progress of the magician, the magician's progress. First is the whole discussion of magic, which is a basic discussion. It's a, it's a great big jump he does there in the first volumes of the Golden Bound. And any discussion of magic since has had to turn to Fraser. What he has omitted has been to discuss the importance of charms, the, the spoken word. Uh, Malinowski has criticized him on this. Um, but that's a very slight failure. The charm, actually, the mumbo-jumbo charm is the infusion of power. Just because the words excite you, you think that the object into which you're reciting, uh, reciting the words is also excited by them. 
He's really imitated magic on the verbal instead of the human level. Now, says Frazier, the man who is a magician, if he's trying to be successful, he has to be a faker. Um, he has to know that this thing really isn't working at all. Shamans, we'll be talking about them later, are in great danger in a, in a primitive society. You must realize that most primitive people, really primitive people, do not believe that death is natural. When anyone dies, the death is the result of some magician's work, private magician working. No one tries to find the magician. No one tries to kill him. Sets one magician against another or goes after him with bows and arrows. Uh, so the magician is in danger. If he fails in his work, he's in danger because he is thought to have the power. And if he fails, it's intentional on his part. So the magician who succeeds and who lives to a fairly old age is one who knows that he's a fake and he knows how to fix things up so that um, the effects that he seeks will take place. Now, actually, it is not too difficult to uh, hex a person. That's a person who believes in hexing. All you have to do is let him know that somebody is working on it. And uh, also, a lot of the uh, activity, the cult associated with this is, is gruesome. And uh, also, strange things happen. And you, they uh, chuck. Uh, somebody trying to hex me a couple of years ago and taking this. <laughs> I'd walk into my office and there would be a rubber lizard on the floor. You know? All that kind of thing. And somebody comes down the window. And just uh, hexing. Well, people die. Read Joyce Carey, The African Witch. This is a wonderful novel, and it gives you the sense of how these things operate on, on people who believe in them. In Hawaii, the kahuna is a, is a witch doctor who kills people and works to this day. People have died from kahuna magic. So, take place. A man who has this power, or a woman, because women can work magic too. Uh, the kahuna is often a woman, and so is the witch doctor. This in the African witch has power over other people, and can get to be the leader of the community. Grace's point now is that this is an advance, a sociological advance, that the oligarchy, the old people, who are the wise people, are conservative. But this clever person, who is clever enough to keep himself alive and to frighten everybody, is clever enough also to bring society ahead. So you have Fraser, as it were, politically, for the dictatorship and the strong man on the horse. The, the magician's progress, then, is the result of his power. And uh, the fact that he's a faker means that the leader is a faker. These days, we know that. This is always good, so let's not be too discouraged. Now comes a very important phase of Fraser's thinking. The progress or transition from magic through religion to science. This is a sequence in his view of magic, religion, science. Since that is a sequence, it means that magic is seeking the ends that science seeks. That religion is seeking the ends that science 
mistakes. It's possible to describe religion in different terms, but when we read Fraser, his definition of religion has to be accepted, at least for the length of time that you're reading his book, in order to understand what he's saying. You mustn't say, oh no, that's not religion, and so he's wrong. What does Fraser say religion is? And then we've got the book here on page 50, a little statement. Religion is defined as the propitiation of uh, superhuman powers. Now, being something of a scientist and something of a rationalist, he makes the mistake of supposing that other people are rational too. And that uh, when magic has failed time and time and time again, uh, people say, well, let's make up another hypothesis. It's as though magic were a hypothesis. Now, the distinction between magic and religion is in that word, powers superior to man, personal powers superior to man. Magic is completely impersonal. It works just the way science does. For Fraser, magic and science are alike in that cause A will bring about effect A every time. You see, it's properly uh, moved. The causal principle will bring about an effect. So that if the effect doesn't come about, there has been an error in the production of the cause. When we turn the switch, the light should go out. Turn it the other way, the light should go on. If it doesn't go on, then you think, well, the bulb is bad. So you take the bulb out, put another one in, it still doesn't go on. Well, then there's something wrong with the wires. So you send someone to the wire, he fixes the wire, it still doesn't go on. So there may be something wrong with the fuse, all that. But finally, you get it. And if you have a competent electrician around, you'll work it out. But suppose you get it all worked out, and then turn the switch, and it still doesn't go on. Then there's something else involved here. Now this happens, the place you can see this happens is on the stage at a show. When, you know, the, the light is turned out on the stage and it doesn't go up. Well, that means the stage hand is asleep. So they say, hey Bill, and the light will go up. There's a personality out there. I suppose Bill is just out to ruin things for you. How do you go about getting that light to come on? You might say, please, yeah. <laughs> that's prayer. <laughs> you say, Bill, I'll raise your salary. That's awesome. You may flatter. All of these perfectly human devices are turned on Bill out there. Up there, the one who didn't turn the reins, force it on when you made all the right gestures. You see what's happened. You've gone from mechanical devices based on association of ideas to pleading with the personality. That, for Fraser, is the transition from magic to religion. Now, in most religions, both processes are operating. Let, let's be honest. Most religion is as Fraser defines it. People want to be helped by God. They want God to cure their children for them, to protect them while they're driving. They put a little 
magical metal on the car. Now they have whole altars on the front of the car. The effort really is to achieve what science achieves. Now we don't so much pray, although that comes as a kind of peripheral activity, but we go to a doctor. Now, science has come in. Science is the proper cause-effect relationship, the factual one, the objective one, the actual <laughs> one out there. Not what I imagine to be the relationship, but what I have found to be the relationship. That's the main difference between magic and religion. And so Fraser, as a scientist, is uh, rather sympathetic to the magical position and quite disdainful and antipathetic with respect to the, the religious. The history of man was written first in black with magic, then red with religion. Offerings. I'll give you my dog. Um, white with science. See how the one-line progress. However, we know, even in the matter that Fraser gives us, that these religious rites have to do not only with propitiations to the God, but also with a psychological crisis within the individual. And it's this that I'm going to be stressing later when we talk with about Freud and Jung. With Fraser, that plays almost no role. His whole emphasis is on this line for the achievement of results in life. Tangible, factual aims to be achieved. In fact, he, as I say, his psychology is um, rational, associational, and he has very little sense of the problem of harmonization of the psyche and so forth. After all, his own psyche was pretty well taken care of. He was in man with a vocation, and he knew it, and he knew how to handle it, and so on. Now, let's come to the, the transition from magician to religion. The association of ideas is still playing. The public magician is interested in the fertility of the soil. He would bring rain by dipping a um, leaf, let's say, in the most crude way, into water, and then sprinkling it. Well, when you go to the ceremonies, the dances in New Mexico of the uh, Pueblo Indians, these dances are for rain. These, these dances are doing two things. One is they're pounding on the ground to wake up the spirits down there. The other, they're shaking rattles out here to imitate the sound of falling rain. And on the rattles, you have thunderbirds and all these devices. So we've got the whole thing in operation, both the, the bill outside under, under the stage and uh, also the magic working. Now the magician himself, since he has the power now, is going to be identified with the God. He has within him the personality. This is the big transition that Fraser uh, developed here. From magician to God. And it's a God concerned with and related to the promise of fertility. So it would be a fertility God. I want to bring out a point that Fraser doesn't bring out simply because not enough was known. This business of uh, fertility magic, which he was talking about, operates on two quite different levels in agricultural society. We have the Neolithic society.
society, the village society. And we have the Bronze Age or hieratic city state, the kingly society. Let's call this the, the, um, the state, the uh, city state, with its king. Now, in the rituals on the village level, obviously fertility magic is, is sexual magic. And so the sex act itself activates the fertility of nature. That's the sense of all the orgies and so on. What you have in the Neolithic society is the village orgy. As Joyce said, every city with everybody else. And uh, <laughs> along with that, the selection of the, the most uh, beautiful or handsome young man and woman in the community to be the divine, the representative of the divine being. So we have the, the youth and maidens. Selected for this year or next year or what? We'll see what happens to them. <coughs> then, with the transition from this mere village to the great cosmic order, the king, as the leading person, the king becomes the magician, God. So most of Fraser's writing has to do with the king and queen as representatives the god and goddess. We're going to have imitative magic or fertility and it's going to be in the way of the union of the sexes either in the way of a village ritual or in the way of the kingly rite. Now as I've already pointed out the cycling of the stars and sun and moon, particularly these two, the moon as the lord of the tides of life, and the planet Venus as the consort of the moon. It's quite a beautiful thing, uh, particularly in the Mediterranean skies, when the moon and Venus are in the same, uh, the crescent moon and Venus are in the same constellation and about set. They go down together, and then later the moon is led out by Venus. This is the origin of Sutti idea. When the husband dies, the wife follows, and it is she who leads him and herself also to re rebirth. Uh, it's a very beautiful and conspicuous affair. Now, at certain times, once every eight years or so, this happens. These go down together, and after a period of extinction behind the sun, run together. That time, king and queen are killed. Uh, Fraser points out that the killing of the king is very intimately associated with this business of the fertility of the king. And that's the point I want to talk about now and uh, try to develop in Fraser's way. The queen represents the land. I've said that before. The woman brings forth children and nourishes children. That's what the land does. So her ability to do that has a sympathetic influence on the land. That's imitative magic. The land imitates her. So in primitive uh, planting cultures, very often the women are the ones who do the planting because they know they are representatives of the principle of bringing forth life. So the queen is going to represent the land. Now the king 
will be a youth who is worthy to be her spouse, and he will come from another community. There is normally competition for the kingship. This occurs in various ways. In Sanskrit, there's a, uh, a ritual called Svayambara. Svayam means choice, and Svayam means self, self-choice, where the princess chooses her husband. The Svayambara is held, and the princes from all the lands come and they stand around and are chosen by the princess. One of the first stories one reads when one's studying Sanskrit, Nala and Damayanti, is a story of this kind. Just for fun, I'll, I'll tell it very briefly now. It's of a, um, of a woman, a young girl, who in her garden is told by a swan about the beauty and wonder of a youth named Nala, a prince named Nala. Then the swan goes to Nala and tells him about the beauty and wonder of the princess Damayanti. And each falls in love with the other by report. And she falls in love to such a degree that uh, the sickness that cannot be cured by the doctors becomes hers. She loses weight, looks very ill and sad, and nobody can cure her. So her father thinks, well, it's time for Damayanti to have her Svayambara. These are this is an aristocratic tradition. So um, word goes out to all the princes that um, Damian's going to have his Fiambra. Well, the gods in heaven begin to wonder why nobody's coming to heaven these days. And uh, they, uh, he, they ask a sage who comes up there, and the sage states that uh, Damianti's having his Fiambra, and who'd want to go to heaven with the opportunity of possibly being chosen? So the gods think, well, we're going to. So they all come down. In the great caravans, when the Svayambara date comes, you have the caravans come from heaven and the princes coming from all around. And they see a young man walking along the way. And it is not walking, riding with his company. It is Nala. So the gods call down to Nala and they say, Nala, you tell Damayanti that the gods are coming to Svayambara and she's got to choose one of us. Well, that's an awful blow to him. And he says, you can't do this to me. I'm going there myself. I said, we can do that to you, all right. And he says, uh, well, how am I going to get in there to tell her that you're coming? I said, don't worry, the doors will open for you. So he goes to the palace. He does keep his uh, trust. He walks through, the guards are asleep. He walks right into the harem. And there is Damayanti being all prepared. All of her damsels around her, putting up her hair and all this kind of business. And the door opens, and then the... Uh, the says, as he stands in the door and she sees him and he sees her, a whole beauty, a whole wonder, a whole glory. So they're, they're really gone. And uh, he says, the gods are coming to your Svayambra, and they say, you have to choose one of them. It's a very sad moment for the little couple, but she says, I'm going to choose one of them. So what happens? And what do the gods do? This is the way gods are. She comes in, and there are 15 Nala's. They've all put on the guise of Nala. So the little girl starts to cry. And uh, she doesn't want a god, she wants Nala. And um, this is a Svayambra, where she chooses the one. That's what I'm describing here. Well, how does she work it out? 
can't you tell a god from a human being? They stand, the gods are just a little bit above the ground. <laughs> their, eyes, their eyes do not blink. And their garlands are not wilted even a little bit. So she chooses the one who blinks, stares at the ground, and his garland is just a little bit wilted. Boy. But the, um, that's one way. <laughs> Even a god loses. Another way is competition here. You, the, the, this event occurs in the uh, Greek myths all the time. Racing or combat. Now, very often, these races and combats are not uh, mortal, but very often they are. And we get many stories of this kind. But those who lose, really lose. <laughs> They're killed. In, in, in mortal combat. The view, the, the aim being, as Fraser said, that the one who wins should be the most vigorous, since the whole vigor of the community is to depend on this, on the vitality and vigor of this, uh, this king. He is the god. And so it is. Now you can see what this is in terms of our uh, myth cycle. Here's the queen down here. And combat and the test and the difficult task and then it is the motif of the sacred marriage on which this whole mystery, this whole fertility system depends. Now when he has the position of being king, a new problem, namely the power is in him, this is all by analogy, the power is in him and must not be lost. Here now, there comes a whole system of taboos. He can't do this, he can't do that, he can't do something else. He is a god, and everything I said a couple of weeks ago about gods and nymphs pertains now to him. He's like a high-power electric plant, and, and uh, to touch, to get in, even to have to look at you, is, is great, great danger. Now, this may sound rather silly, but in, um, in many cultures, this is a very important for instance, in Polynesia, uh, where this energy is regarded as being genealogically communicated, the higher the um, nobility of a family, the higher its uh, power. And for a person, just a convenient, just the person down here, even to touch the canoe of a great chieftain would be enough for that person to die. There have been many times of this sort. So the king now, for his own protection and for the protection of the community, has to be immunized. There has to be insulation around him, and that is the function of taboo. You see what Fraser is doing, covering the whole range of primitive and archaic life in terms of this um, system of magical association, now transformed into a kind of divine. Now, when he has when he is a good king, when he is a potent king, but also good spiritually, the, the kingdom flourishes. Crops flourish, the philosophy uh, and the arts flourish, everything <coughs> flourishes. When he begins to decline in power or in virtue, things begin to go to peace. You've all read one time or another while here, T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland. Elliot refers to Jesse Weston's 
From Ritual to Romance. Jesse Weston's From Ritual to Romance is based on Fraser's Golden Bough. <clears throat> the main aim of the Grail's quest is to restore a king to health. The community, because of a wound that he has received, is devastated. And the hero is to restore the king to health. This is the main theme of that hero quest. Consequently, when the king's powers begin to fail, something has to be done about it. And what is done about it is he is killed. He is killed and his powers are transferred to another. Now that very briefly is the answer to the first question that Fraser asked at the opening of this Golden Bible. Why did Diana's priest, the king of the woods at Dami, have to kill his predecessor? He had to kill his predecessor to prove that he was the stronger man and to take over the role of being king of the woods because of the fertility of that shrine and through that shrine of the whole community. And he would lose his power when another would come with the power to kill him. Now on one level, this can be considered in magical terms. Let's say we have the king and queen and the world of vegetation. This is the important thing, that the vegetation should flourish, not only vegetation, but the community, which depends on it, so forth and so on. And it's through the actual cult of the king and queen, the actual ritual connubium of the king and queen, that this is uh, caused to uh, flourish. <coughs> As Fraser says, on the most primitive level, the king is killed when his powers begin to fail. But there's another whole complex of uh, associations where the king is killed after a certain term of years. Now, I've reviewed very carefully the, uh, the instances in Fraser's Golden Bar where the term of years occurs. And in one system, it's eight every eight years, and in another system, every 12. And this eight-year system is associated with the planet Venus. When Venus reaches its um, brightest in any given constellation, um, it, it's eight years before it reaches that bright condition in that constellation again. This is the, the Venus cycle of eight years. The 12-year cycle is associated with the planet Jupiter. If the queen is associated with Venus, it's an eight-year cycle. If she's associated with that other brilliant planet, Jupiter, it's 12. Every 12 years, the Jupiter's um, circuit is a 12-year circuit. It takes Jupiter 12 years to make a complete year. And in the sign of Cancer, it goes back. That's the recession. Come forward again, and that would be the time the king would be killed. So, in these cults, the king is associated with the planet. Now, Fraser thinks the progress went from the simpler one, when the king's power fails, to the complicated one of the king's power failing, of the king being killed after a certain term of years. My belief is, based on uh, a number of other writers, that it's just the opposite, that the king is originally associated with the cycle, and that when this idea of kingship goes, let us say, into Africa, uh, from Egypt into black Africa, where you where it regresses, drops, people can't even observe this planet, they don't know what, what it is, this other, more primitive uh, way comes along.
You have to remember that always in studying primitive cultures. Most of them are not primitive at all, but regressed. Most of the rituals have come from higher cultures to simpler cultures where they have dropped. So much for the magical side of this. <coughs> now the next point is the religious. When is it thought that a god and goddess are responsible for the vegetation, then the king and queen become incarnations of the god and goddess. That's the step that Fraser is talking about from pure magic, magical king and queen, to the religious. The king and queen now become incarnations of a god and goddess. Again, uh, I think one has to differ with Fraser's evolutionary theory and point out that where vegetation or vegetation cult first emerged in the Near East, the god and goddess idea was already present. So that uh, this whole thing comes to the originally as a single constellation. Now, what I uh, would like you to pay special attention to in your reading next week and week following is the wonderful discussion of the myth of the god and goddess as Fraser presents them. These are the myths, principally, of the Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean. The <laughs> earliest of these myths is the one from Mesopotamia. The principal divinity there representing this cycle is a moon divinity associated with the Lord and the uh, power of the tides named Dumuzi, D-U-M-U-Z-I, Absu, <laughs> the sun or child of the abyss. Dumuzi Absu is a Sumerian divinity. When this uh, cult associated with him goes over into Syria, and the more Semitic zone of later people, this becomes Tamud. The consort of Dumuzi is Inanna. The consort of Tamud is Ishtar. This is the same mythology, just translated into another language. The basic imagery here is of Tamud, the moon, and the goddess as the star which we call Venus. When this goes into the classical world, Tamuz becomes Adonis. Now Adonis is simply a Greek rendition of the uh, Semitic word Adonai, which means the Lord. And in the Greek world, its consort is Aphrodite, who in the Latin is Venus. Venus and Adonis, Aphrodite and Adonis, Ishtar and Tamuz, Inanna and Dumuzi. This is all the same myth. The basic myth is of the death of the moon god, the star following him in Sati, let's say the wife burned on the husband's grave, is an imitation of this, and then through her sacrifice of herself, both of them resurrected and come back again. Now, in the 1920s, Sir Leonard Woolley digging in the city of Ur, the old Sumerian city of Ur, came upon graves in which there were dozens of human beings buried. In one very vivid case, the king's grave was under the queen's. His whole court was here. 
There was his burial in a great sort of palestrade. Then there were a couple of wagons with oxen and all the attendants standing around and the harem, the women in rows. The hoppers, the girl hoppers with her hand on the hop, the skeleton hand, still where the strings were. The hops themselves were beautiful little liars with an upright and a bull's head here. Beautiful blue-bearded bull wearing lapis lazuli beard. I want to see a bull with a beard. That's a divine bull. And the body of the hop is uh, the bull's body. And then the strings come down. That is the moon bull. That is Shamud, of whom the king was the personal <coughs> incarnation. The song of the bull is the music of the spheres. Above this is the queen's court that says she follows. Her wagon, because this is earlier than the time, the date for this is around 1800 or 2000 BC. This is an argument for the date, but they seem to be settling it about there. Uh, were drawn in by asses, and then there were an, an, a court uh, maidens in, in her entourage too, and the lords and grooms um, and all this. The women in this grave had hair ribbons of metal. A certain number of them had uh, golden hair ribbons, and a certain number had silver hair ribbons. All but one whose hair ribbon was not up here, but was found all still tied up at the level of her pelvis. It had been in her pocket. She'd been late from the party and hadn't had time to put her everything on. They all came, and there are some bowls in the grave which may well have contained henbane or some other uh, sleeping uh, potion. And uh, they were in perfect order, no disturbance at all, uh, and the graves filled in. So here's a whole court enacting the role of the heavens. It's a rather important point to get. Civilization begins with an imitation of a heavenly plot. The human beings identify themselves with the planets, which are identified with the gods. We have the god and goddess. We have the planets representing the god and goddess. We have the king and queen in the court representing the god and goddess in their court. And when the moon and planet Venus go down, so does the entire court. This is the aristocratic spirit, playing the game to the end. In Japan, this is represented by Harakiri, where a person who has failed in his aristocratic duty will commit Harakiri. He lives his life as far as he can in terms of the role he is to play when he fails in that, or when the time comes for him to die, he dies. Uh, what is called in Japan, death following, continued right up to the time of the uh, Russian-Japanese War. Uh, when one of the, the great, uh, when, when the Emperor Meiji died, uh, a number of his generals committed harakiri. This is death following, this is, this, this is going down into the grave. 
you can ask yourself what the economic advantage would have been to the king to become a king if he knew that in eight years he was going to have to be buried. It, it has nothing to do with economics. Again, as I say, civilization is based, just as economics is based, on mythology, not the other way around. Now, this same mythology, which uh, I'm illustrating here, went <coughs> to Egypt, where it arrived around 2850 BC. In Egypt, the deity who dies and is resurrected is Osiris. The spouse of Osiris is Isis, his sister's wife. Now, there's another important point about this. The goddess and the god are one person in, or one substance in two persons. The two together make the unit. Osiris and Isis have been by the priests of Egypt involved in an extremely elaborate mythology. The pharaoh is identified <coughs> with Osiris. We know this. The throne on which he sits is identified with Isis. You will see Isis always depicted the, the, uh, the woman's uh, head. They'll have on it a throne. That is the symbol of Isis, the throne on the head of the goddess. His spouse also is Isis. The queen is Isis. She is the personification of the power of the throne. Now in this mythology, Osiris is killed. Tammuz is killed. Dunothea is killed. Adonis is killed. These are killed by a boar. That's our old pink. The animal that kills the god is his dark or inferior or chronic aspect. In this case, Osiris is killed by his brother. His brother is Seth. The Greek is often called Typhon. And Seth's sister wife is Nestor. And now we come to a rather complicated and interesting myth. Osiris one night thought he was sleeping with Isis, but was actually sleeping with Seth. How this happens? A uh, child was begotten that night, and this child is Anubis. This is the god with the jackal head. In Egyptian iconography, you'll see a little god with the head of a jackal. That's the oldest son of Osiris, <coughs> and it is Osiris' son by Nestus. Seth did not take well to this. Seth determined to kill Osiris. And he did it in a very interesting way. He took the measurement of Osiris' shadow and he made a sarcophagus, a beautiful sarcophagus that would just fit Osiris. And at a very nice fun party, in he comes with this sarcophagus and he says, anyone whom this fits can have it. So everybody at the party tried on, like, what's the name with the glass slipper, tried the, uh, the sarcophagus. And so when Osiris got into it, 72 thugs came running out, clapped the top on the thing, sealed it, and tossed it into the Nile. Well, so Osiris is gone, 
and Isis is lamenting. Isis starts hunting for Osiris. And she goes all over the Mediterranean world. Now, see where Egypt is down here. And uh, up she goes the coast, along where Palestine is, and gets up to Syria, where you find a little place called Biblos. And she's walking along there when she smells this wonderful aroma from a tree. And she knows what has happened. The sarcophagus was washed ashore there, and a tree growing up enveloped it, and Osiris is within the tree. I've uh, told the wrong version of the story. She uh, is wandering, and she comes to a palace and gets the job in the palace to be nurse to a, uh, a child, the king's child in the palace. And while she is in the palace, she notices this aroma from the, a pillar in the palace. The tree that I just described had been cut down and installed in the palace as a kind of thing worth uh, having around because of its wonderful aroma. And here she is, and she knows that her husband is there. Well, now Isis uh, engaged in a rather curious enterprise. She is nurse. She's playing nurse to a little boy, a little boy baby. Everybody has gone to sleep. She takes the little boy and puts him in the fire. Well, <laughs> the reason she's doing this is for his own good. She's trying to make him immortal. And while the little boy is in the fire, uh, she turns into a hawk, a bird, and flies twittering around the pillar. And the boy's mother, one evening, comes in and sees this curious thing with her baby in the fire. And she lets out a, a shriek of uh, anguish and uh, shock. And, well, you know, the hawk turns back into the nursemaid, Isis. And uh, Isis says, oh, what a calamity that you've come because your son would have been immortal just two nights more. Something like this. So the whole thing is a mess. And uh, they, they decide they don't quite want a nurse like that. <laughs> and they, um, they invite her away. Well, she says, yes, but my husband is in the pillar. <laughs> so um, they um, do take the pillar down for They said you could have, have the pillar. And they cut the pillar open. And sure enough, there is the sarcophagus of her husband. And when they open the sarcophagus, and she sees Osiris, she lets out such a shriek, the little boy dies of Shock, anyhow. So then the family, <laughs> they get a barge and they load the sarcophagus with Isis aboard on the barge and send the barge back down toward the Nile. Now comes the next point. Isis, in the form of a hawk, prostrates herself over her husband, who is dead. And the dead Osiris begets his son. So his son is Horus. Horus is the hawk god. Osiris now has two sons. One begotten on Nephthys, who is Anubis, with the head of a jackal. Another, the child of Isis, begotten while he is dead. This relationship, I want to stress, of the dead begetting the living here. It's a very important motif in this whole mythological affair. Well, when they get ashore, they land in the papyrus swamp of the delta. Isis gives birth to her little horse, 
And um, she's nursing him. When Seth, out hunting a boar, comes along, and here he sees this little Pieta with the dead uh, Osiris and the mother nursing a little child. If you want another picture of this, just look at uh, Picasso's uh, Genica over in the left-hand corner. The bull there, so the pig, the bull, and the Pieta with the mother and the child. Um, he gets uh, very angry and cuts Osiris to pieces and now throws him into the mouth in chunks. Well, now comes the business of Isis, and Anubis now helps her because he can sniff around. And they, they begin to gather up the pieces of Osiris. It's a very important myth, actually. It sounds kind of crazy, but it, it, it's extremely moving in the rites and all the hymns associated with each of these episodes, since they're all associated with both psychological and sociological practice. They, they do recover all of Osiris except his sex organs. These have been swallowed by fish. So that Osiris can no longer be lord of the living. He has lost the power. The power goes to his son, Horus. And he is now judge of the dead in the underworld. Osiris sits on the great throne of Osiris in the underworld, and the dead come to be judged by him. Meanwhile, Horus sits on the throne. The dead pharaoh in the pyramid is Osiris. The living pharaoh on the throne is Horus. They are the same. Father and son are the same. The son is the re-living of the father. This is the great Egyptian transformation of this simple myth of uh, Tammuz and Ishtar. But um, the main lines have been maintained, but the whole thing has been amplified. One has to watch for this kind of thing in the Masonic. This is the same myth. The reason I've developed this is to bring this point out, that it is the same myth. We're going to see considerably more of that. Uh, how many here have read uh, Thomas Mons Joseph and his brothers, the first part of it, the tale of Jacob? Uh, just very briefly, because we're going to read at the end of the year. Uh, Jacob, Leah, Reuben, Jacob, Rachel, Joseph. Thomas Mons plays on this. Uh, he sees the whole Jacob, uh, Joseph, uh, uh, Jacob with the, his two wives in terms of the Osiris. And uh, I just uh, want to point that out to indicate that in this rather primitive context, we are on the way to greater things later on. <clears throat> now, Fraser's discussion of these myths is very, very uh, lucid, rich, and important. I just want to speak about one more context up in the Greek world in which these gods uh, appear. There is the, the story of Persephone. And Hades and Persephone's mother Demeter. Remember Hades, uh, Persephone, the little uh, nymph, really, a young girl around 15, out picking flowers. And the lord of the abyss, Hades, abducts her to the underworld. She's now the queen of the underworld. Her mother then goes <coughs> to find her, just as Isis was seeking Osiris. So Demeter is seeking her daughter. In the Greek 
tradition of Demeter and Persephone, the center of gravity, the center of emphasis has been shifted from the god to the goddess. But it's the same story going down in the abyss and coming out again. Now, this mythology of Persephone and Demeter is the basic mythology of the Eleusinian mysteries and the uses just outside of Athens, which is the fundamental mystery of the Greeks. Socrates was initiated here. And uh, Socrates says that through this initiation, one does experience the mystery of immortality. What the mystery consisted in is uh, not clear because the mystery was supposed to be secret and not revealed. But the sense of the mystery, and the reason for not revealing it is that you enact the myth yourself. You are brought in through a... Uh, temple compound in which the experience of the legend is emphasized and then suddenly the goddess appears you have the impact of a surprise image which uh, awakens in you a realization of the mystery how this was done we don't know but it was done another figure who represents this death and resurrection motif is Dionysus Dionysus is torn apart as a child and comes back life again. And Dionysus is the lord of the classical theater and the tragedy. And what is the tragedy? It is the tearing apart of the hero and uh, the rebirth in, in uh, eternity somehow experienced and implied. So out of this basic dumasi absu myth, we have this enormous context. And uh, as I say, phrases, presentation of these myths, is not only one of the best presentations ever rendered, it is also the most important part of his book. It's a wonderful uh, opening out this whole thing. In his lecture, Professor Campbell implicitly notes the evolution of scholarship in the 19th and 20th centuries. The great project of 19th century scholarship was, it seems to me, to present a kind of unified field theory that encompassed and explained the world as a whole. Of course, the Bible and the study of antiquity, the classics, were central to the intellectual world of the 19th century, and claims of intellectual authority were made by those in both these camps, and the competition between them was fierce. As the 19th century drew to a close, it was clear that the ability to develop a unified theory was impossible, and scholarly specialization eventually became the order of the day. Much of the 19th century scholarship intended to explode the myths of gods, of immaterial souls, and even that of free will, and solve all social problems through a practical application of what Herbert Spencer called social Darwinism. Spencer, and notably Walter Badgett, believed that the process of natural selection would result in the survival of the best competitors and continue to manifest improvements in the population. Societies were also viewed as organisms that evolve in the same way. Unfortunately, social Darwinism only succeeded in institutionalizing social injustice as it reinforced class stratification, avaricious capitalism, and so-called natural inequalities among individuals. Any large-scale attempt to remedy these social problems was seen to interfere with natural processes. 
the poor, the unhealthy, the mentally challenged, these people were deemed unfit and should not be helped or aided in any way. Social Darwinism was a rationale used to institutionalize racism, imperialism, and colonization. Critical theory, such as postmodernism and deconstruction, are the most recent attempts at critiquing and correcting the cultural status quo, expanding and sometimes exploding ideas of normality or various binaries and orthodoxies, and becoming more and more responsive to contemporary uses and circumstances of literature, art, and philosophy. It wrestles with life and all its subtleties and inconsinities, rather than simply accepting an authoritative, dogmatic, and hidebound worldview. Unfortunately, the innate conservatism of institutional structures intentionally and resolutely resists any attempts at fundamental change. In addition to that resistance, postmodernism in general, and deconstruction specifically, have been grossly misinterpreted and misunderstood. They've also been misappropriated and misapplied, and rather than taken as ways to reimagine our relationship to life, they are believed to state that there is no meaning, no truth, and no reality. I think that as a culture, we would be well served by developing a kind of double vision, a way of seeing oneself, others, and the world that allows us to live in both the old and the new at once and experience how they interflow, to embrace living in such a way that reconciles one to the other and results in some new way of thinking about and living in the world that utilizes elements of both old and new, tradition and iconoclasm pessimism, as well as hope. Another strong critique of Fraser is his conflation of magic with science, which is rightly focused on his tendency to view societies and cultures as evolving in the same way as individuals, from magic to religion and finally to science. Not all, nor even most cultures, evolve in such a linear manner. Professor Campbell points out this problem in Fraser by noting that even in early so-called primitive societies, a belief in gods can be found, thereby contradicting Fraser's progression. Fraser's comparative method relies on the resemblance between phenomena, not in any objective, rigorous comparative analysis, but rather only in the observer's, in other words, his own imagination. The great strength of Fraser's work, its imaginative speculation, quickly becomes its great error when phenomena that remain associated only in one's mind quickly acquire the aura of fact. This is not only Fraser's error. We see this everywhere in contemporary life. The predominant sentiment in contemporary culture seems to be expressed something like, my opinion carries more weight than your facts. And any sort of critical analysis or reflection is deemed to be unnecessary because if something feels intuitively right or true, it therefore must be both right and true. Associating facts in the mind is a fallacy most of us use at one time or another. And Professor Campbell discusses the two primary ways this occurs. One, the facts resemble one another. 
In that similarity alone, phenomena tend to be paired together. Campbell calls this sort of pairing homeopathic or imitative magic. He notes that a subset of imitative magic includes charms and incantations, which also work through pairing, but use words instead of images. In the second instance, facts have been in contact with one another, what Campbell calls contagious magic. It isn't unusual that two unrelated facts can be found together and yet have no connection at all. It is rather like Jung's definition of synchronicity, which he defined as, quote, an a-causal connecting principle in which events, both large and small, in the external world might align to the experience of the individual, perhaps mirroring or echoing personal concerns or thoughts, unquote. Such a proximity between facts allows one to make personal psychological meanings that have little to do with the world of material fact. It's a bit like the experience of awakening at the same time, say, 3.33 in the morning over the course of several nights. Or, say, you're reading Moby Dick and you turn on NPR and hear a story about Melville and his novel. The point is that randomness is everywhere, and when random things are in contact with one another often enough, one may believe that there's a magical connection between factually unconnected events. The difference between magic and science, at least in the realm of Fraser's Golden Bough, is that magical phenomena are associated within the mind, while science insists upon locating the proper cause and effect relationships of phenomena in the world. The reason Fraser discusses science and magic, seemingly in the same breath, is that he sees them both working in the world through the function of cause and effect, but it's the locus of the cause and effect relationship that differs. The locus of the cause and effect of magic is in the mind through association, and the cause and effect locus of science is in the world through objective fact. Religion differs from both magic and science because in religion there's a request to satisfy various desires through the suspension of the principles of cause and effect in the world. The move from magic to religion creates a relationship of the personal to the supernatural, and it makes it reasonable to propitiate a deity to intervene on one's behalf, even at the expense of others or the environment. Religion gives to the individual, as Campbell says, the power of the god itself, and moves away from a dependence upon magicians, who often fail, to dependence upon a presumably omnipotent, infallible god. In this way, religion is an upgrade from magic, for it no longer relies solely on prosaic cause and effect relationships, but instead defines the absolute final cause, a god that controls all matter, change, and movement and may even, if sufficiently persuaded, choose to vitiate the laws of physics. Hence, in religion, miracles are thought not only to be possible, but common. Now, let me go back and, and touch on the inspiration of Fraser's work. 
Turner's painting of Lake Nemi. Fraser writes, and I'm quoting him here, Nemi is a little woodland lake, Diana's mirror, as it was called by the ancients. No one, he says, who has seen that calm water lapped in a green hollow of the Alban hills can ever forget the stillness and even the solitariness of the scene. Diana herself might still linger by this lonely shore, still haunt these woodlands wild. Unquote. Lake Nemi and its verdant groves was in Roman mythology the sacred sanctuary of Diana, the goddess of wildness, among other things, and her priests attending the lakeside grove reflected an animalistic wildness in their very presence, for they were installed there only after having killed the previous priest. Fraser was fascinated by this story, by this legend, this myth, and his 12-volume work was largely his attempt to understand this story and other death and resurrection stories like it. While discussing this feature of Fraser's work, Professor Campbell summed it up, saying, the gods and the goddesses are one substance in many figures. As Campbell continues to talk about the myths of Osiris and Isis, figures who illustrate this one substance in many people, he loses his place, a rare occurrence in any Campbell talk, and says to the class, I've told the wrong version of the story. But in fact, he hadn't told the wrong version. He simply forgot, for the moment, where he was in the progression of the story. I bring this up because I think it's important to remember that the errors we make are often the genesis of thoughts we might not otherwise ever have dared to think, of insights we wouldn't have come to any other way, of realities available to us we might not otherwise have dreamt of. To constantly think only in terms of correctness, of right versus wrong, of good versus bad, even of life over death, seems so constraining and limiting and so literal. The world is not, human existence is not, something to be understood literally. To a shocking degree, the world is the product of human imagination and the human mind and not insignificantly of human error. The golden bough, this product of the mind, just as wondrous, just as fascinating, just as enigmatic as the old myths Fraser studied, was founded on an error. Remember, Fraser tells us in the beginning of the first chapter of The Golden Bough that his influence was J.M.W. Turner's painting of Lake Nemi. But in reality... Turner's painting was of Lake Avernus, the place where Aeneas descended to the underworld. If Fraser had not mistakenly associated Turner's painting of Lake Avernus with Lake Nemi, it's possible that we wouldn't even have this remarkable work of speculative imagination. For me, the value of the Golden Bough is that it is this beautiful, and remarkable work that reminds me that the rich truths we find in life are often conceived in error. 
And it's the error that makes that truth possible. In its unique way, I rank Fraser's book with other outstanding 19th century works of imagination, like Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure or George Eliot's Middlemarch. I suppose we could live just fine without them, but if we should have to, how much more dreary life would be. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back next month with a new Joseph Campbell lecture on the Joseph Campbell Foundation's podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. Pathways with Joseph Campbell is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the Mythmaker Podcast Network and is produced by John Booker and Elias Mirnoff. Executive producer, Robert Walter. Your host has been Bradley Olson. Editing and audio services provided by Seth Balin. Music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.